Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Gabino Iglesias. He is a writer, journalist, professor, and literary critic whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Times, Electric Literature, Lit Reactor, NPR, Publishers Weekly, the SF Chronicle, the Boston Globe, and many, many more publications. His new book is The Devil Takes You Home, which is published by our friends at Mulholland Books. Gabino, welcome to the program. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me, man. Excited to be here. It is an honor to have you here. So, Gabino, this will be one of the best books of the year. Let's state that up front. (laughs) It is not a book for the faint of heart. I've been describing it as a cross between Breaking Bad and No Country for Old Men to our staff. Thank uh, you. Thank you um, at Quail Ridge Books. It is so good. So first, congrats on writing it. Thank Um, you very much. Thank you. And I want to first ask you about your dedication. Uh, You dedicate this book to your family, but then to the city of Austin uh, for trying to kill you. What does this mean, Gabino? And why is the city of Austin trying to kill you? It's, uh, uh, I moved to Austin in 2008 uh, Mm. to pursue a uh, PhD at UT Austin. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was one of those I'm just gonna wing it. I'm, I'm gonna go go out there and see what happens. Uh, um, I had a relatively normal life. Uh, sometimes things were fine. Sometimes things were a little tight, but uh, nothing too bad. And then I moved here, um, kind of in a rough spot, and I had two hundred thirty-six dollars to my name. Um, mm. And between uh, two thousand eight and uh, this book coming out. It was just uh, ups and downs. It was, uh, you know, unemployment or underemployment, trying to finish my, my PhD, which uh, I thought was going to take about four or five years, ended up taking seven. Um, <laughs> just life kicks, me, uh, kicks you around a little bit. And um, I fell in love with the city and I wanted to stay uh, in 2008 is when I decided I'm, I'm just going to switch it and I'm going to start writing in English because why not? I'm, I'm in the mm-hmm. U.S. now. Um, mm-hmm. so it's, it's been a, it's been a love hate relationship since, since I've moved here, uh, but I'm still alive and I think the city's mm-hmm. starting to love me a little bit more. So, uh, I'm sticking around for a while longer. <laughs> oh, good, good. Yeah. I know a lot of people who have moved to Austin and I've seemed to be having similar experiences. We recently, um, right pre COVID, we hosted our friend, Sarah Rose Edder, who was in the process of moving yeah. to Austin at the time. Um, she's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Gabino. Um, I would next like to ask you to take a moment uh, just to set up your novel for our listeners. It is a novel that has an immediate hook. Uh, please, Gabino, can you introduce our listeners to this novel, The Devil Takes You Home? Sure thing. Uh, there is a, uh, a father who loses his uh, a very young daughter to uh, leukemia. They're, they're a brown family. And uh, for those of you who are not into medical stuff uh leukemia is is one of those cancers that's very scary but it tends to be detected very early and and many many kids survive uh for some reason that science hasn't been able to explain uh it hurts uh, brown kids uh at a higher level or it's the the mortality rate is a little higher uh in brown Mm -hmm. kids uh so he loses his daughter to um 
uh, to leukemia. And then, you know, we live in the US of A, where if you get sick, it's just cheaper to die. So mm-hmm. in the aftermath of losing his daughter, uh, you know, pain, grief, desperation, all that stuff. He's also uh, having to deal with um, money, money troubles, mm-hmm. uh, just a regular guy. And, and there's a lot of uh, stuff that has to come out of your pocket. Um, and so that sort of leads into a life of petty crime and petty crime tends to escalate. The more money you want, the, the awful or the thing that you have to do. Uh, mm. And then eventually he, uh, he finds the type of gig where it's like, go all in and then your life will change with $200,000 in your pocket uh, cash. You don't have to give a penny to the IRS or you might die in the process. And that takes him on a journey from Austin to San Antonio, um, and then from San Antonio to El Paso, from El Paso to uh, Mexico, and then back. And uh, that's when things get from from bad to worse. And uh, you you mentioned it at the beginning. It's it's not it's not an easy read. It's not a YA book. It's not a, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not a romance. Um, and uh, when I say things get dark, things get very 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 dark for him. And uh, we don't know if he's going to make it back, but we do know early on that if, even if he makes it back, he's not going to be the same. And that's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gabino. And um, as a brief aside, what is it about the uh, area surrounding El Paso and Ciudad Juarez that um, produces so many works of quality literature? I'm thinking, um, you know, just recently, let's say going back to Roberto Bolaño's 2666 and then um, into, you know, even this year, Misha Marin released uh, Perpetual West. I'm thinking back to William Bowman's um, Imperial book that's not necessarily around El Paso and Cidas Juarez, but does involve the border. Uh, what is it about this area that is so tumultuous that's um, producing so many stories? It's the, I think any place where you have um, cultures clashing, uh, mm-hmm. then two things tend to happen. The first one is that those two cultures become stronger uh, because mm-hmm. you, need, you need that sort of, you know, reinforce your identity. And the second thing that happens is the entire opposite. And it's that, you know, things tend to mix. So you end mm-hmm. up having a lot more syncretism. Uh, the food, it, it can be Mexican or, or Texan or Tex-Mex. Uh, you have English and you have Spanish, but you have Spanglish in the middle. Uh, you have border kids who can't really tell you um, I'm from Mexico or, or they'll tell you I'm from Mexico, but it turns out that they were born on this side of the border. Um, mm. And then throughout political discourse and, and the use of law, it has become a very ugly, politicized uh, militarized area. So you have this thing where it's on that side, uh, we still believe in the American dream, and then we want to go over there and get it, uh, but it's really hard. So suddenly you mm-hmm. have individuals who, uh, you can be a human, regular human one day, and the next day you're suddenly called an illegal, as if you know being a, a human being could be an illegal. Um, mm. And it's just, it's never gotten any better. There are times where we stop hearing about it, and then there are other times where it's, it's all the news can't talk about. Uh, but that clash of cultures, that clash of politics, that clash of, of identities uh, make it a really, really interesting place. If you add to that the discourse of those who are, um, they're calling themselves nowadays patriots, uh, mm-hmm. who tend to, I'm going to patrol the border and, and make sure we keep the Mexicans out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Salvadorians and the Ecuadorians and everybody else trying to uh, uh, come get us a, a slice of the American dream. 
Uh, and then mm. on top of that, you throw um, the drugs. It's, it's mm-hmm. a situation that you do have to talk about, even though it's ugly. You have a lot of drugs uh, uh, coming in and folks with bad intentions uh, going back. And uh, as I wrote for, for a magazine in France, uh, there's a lot of gun violence between gangs in Mexico. Turns out mm. they can't get guns. So their guns mm. come from the U.S., so it's like we're, we're, we're accepting the drugs because we use them, we consume them, and we're a very big market. And at the same time, there's another business on this side sending guns that we can buy at Walmart or used to uh, be able to buy at Walmart over there mm-hmm. so they can use it um, to keep the drug mayhem going. So put all of that into a, <laughs> into a cauldron and then mix it up and, and you end up having uh, the border. And it's... Uh, it's very interesting to explore and, and talk about and live and spend time with the people there and, uh, and write about. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer, Gabino. Um, so back to your novel and the specifics of it. Um, the doctor, Gabino, who delivers the news to our protagonist and his wife that their daughter has leukemia is described more than once as being young, white, and pretty. Uh, why is it so important to note more than once that the doctor is young, white, and pretty. We have this idea of uh, lawyers, newscasts, folks, uh, uh, doctors, engineers, mm-hmm. as uh, um, old, white, respectable men. Um, mm-hmm. So right of the, I wanted to tell you that she's pretty, she's young, mm-hmm. she's female. Uh, sort mm-hmm. of, we're going to be breaking out with, you know, all of the expectations that you might have about who people might be um, in this uh, in this novel. And there's also that whole thing of like, what's the worst thing, the most ugly thing that could happen to you in your life? Someone telling you that uh, that your your uh, daughter has uh, a cancer, and then mm. the news are delivered by somebody who's very uh, pleasing to the eye, uh, mm. someone young with a very sweet voice. And uh, I think it's on the first or second page. Like her voice was incredibly sweet, but you yeah. can wrap a, a shotgun in flowers, and it doesn't deafen the. Uh, Oh, the boom. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, and Gabino, you write that quote, when you have an accent, people often think you possess the intellect of a fence post, unquote. Is this true, um, both in the world of the novel and outside of it? And if so, why do you think that is? I have absolutely no idea. First of all, because mm-hmm. if you live in the U.S. of A. and you mm-hmm. think and this only applies to about 90% of the people for those 10% that want to argue uh, that you Mm. don't have an answer, um, uh, an accent, I suggest uh, you travel a little bit. Uh, Mm. Because if you're from New York and you you visit the Ozarks, you have an accent. If you are Mm. from the Ozarks and then you go to uh, Texas or California, you have an accent. Um, Mm. And we just think, uh, you know, TV, the TV TV shows, movies, uh, whenever you have somebody from... uh, from West Texas, uh, talks to the police. It's an idiot. It's it's a hillbilly. Uh, and someone yeah. who has an accent is uh, movies and TV shows is someone who's uh, cleaning the pool or or cleaning the house or, or mowing the lawn. Um, mm-hmm. We don't we don't have that image in, in popular media uh, of folks. Uh, the U.S. is the brain drain. The best brains in the world are here. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're from uh, from China, from Japan, from France, from Russia, from. Uh, uh, from all over the Caribbean, uh, mm. it's the idea that if you if you don't have a, a perfect neutral sort of 
Ohio accent, uh, then you are your intellectual prowess is, is not what it should be. Um, and then we've we've made that a joke. So it's like, oh, you sound like Sofia Vergara. It's like it's like this this running joke of of uh, of the accents. We um, we make fun of people. Uh, you know, oh, you're from India. Oh, you're from India. And then we make fun of the accent as if the accent makes you less. Um, mm. And I, I completely it blows my mind. And I've been living here since 2008. And uh, I keep finding bits and pieces of how that just perpetuates the same discourse. Um, and I, I wanted to tackle it in the book because, uh, I mean, you're in North Carolina. My mm -hmm. very good friend, David Joy, one of the most brilliant writers that I know, has an accent. Mm -hmm. Joe Lansdale has an accent. He's from West Texas. Uh, and these are some of the biggest brains uh, that I know. Um, their accents uh, don't, don't make them any less. So... Um, I wanted to tackle that and, and get people thinking about why is it that we think about uh, about accents. For anybody who, like me, is not a native English speaker, you're going to have an accent. It doesn't matter. <laughs> right on. Thank you. And yeah, shout out to David Joy. such a cool guy. Um, yeah. Well, thank you, Gabino. I next want to talk about dreams and different levels of dreaming. Uh, can you tell us about waking dreams, how waking dreams differ from daydreams and how they pertain to this novel, The Devil Takes You Home. So I think The Devil Takes You Home takes place in this very weird uh, interstitial area be between reality and what we consider the, the supernatural. Mm -hmm. I've, I used to date, um, I wrote an essay about it for uh, Tor Night Fire for their blog. I used to date a woman who could see ghosts. So mm. for me, that was a supernatural. For her, it was uh, something that might happen once a month uh, or mm. if she drove by a place where there had been an accident. Um, mm. The entire novel takes place in this intertitial space. It's, uh, for, uh, uh, for, for Mario, it's, uh, it's a reality. It's, a, it's mm. knowing that at some point, what we understand as just completely normal and, and you know reality uh, can sort of slip away and let mm. some other stuff in. Um, I think the difference between those, those uh, daydreams and what you find in this novel is that the daydream is you control it. You sit mm. there and, and you think, uh, the devil takes you home. It's going to do great. People are going right. to love it. They're not going to mind a little mutilation here and there. They're going <laughs> to enjoy it. And, it, and it's going to allow me to keep writing books um, for the rest of my life. That's a daydream. Um, mm. If you're sitting there and then uh, I have a dog, if I'm sitting there and then I hear steps on the mm. second floor and I know I'm alone and I see the dog sit up and look up at the ceiling because he heard it too, then mm. we crossed. I'm not in control anymore, but something mm. weird is happening that's not supposed to happen because mm. it's me and the dog in the house who's walking upstairs. Um, and that's where creepy things start to happen and, and when we, you don't know uh, exactly what's going to happen next. Um, and I just really like that area. Yeah, and if you were here in Raleigh, it would probably be uh, like a raccoon in your attic or something. Raccoon. <laughs> a yeah. possum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Gabino. Um, listeners, we are going to take a moment here to pause for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Gabino Iglesias. Mm -hmm. 
Bookin' Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM allows you to buy audiobooks directly through your favorite local independent bookstore like Explore Booksellers. You continue to put money back into your local economy and help local bookstores thrive. Please navigate to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your local independent bookstores in the process. I'm back with Gabino Iglesias, author of The Devil Takes You Home, which is published by our friends at Mulholland Books. And listeners... I would like to give you a warning that there will be some spoilers in this section of the podcast. Nothing about the end of the book, but definitely a few key spoilers from the beginning through the middle of the book. So I will give you a couple seconds here to pause uh, your listening device and return later once you have read the book. Uh, A couple more seconds here and you have hit your pause button and we are moving on. Okay. Uh, Gabino. Our protagonist, Mario, kills a man for $6,000, an assignment he is given by his uh, meth head, former co-worker, um, an assignment that he executes, as you mentioned earlier, so he can have money to pay for his daughter's hospital bills. And then, immediately afterwards, his daughter dies. Uh, Is there something to be said here about patience and desperate rushes towards potential resolutions? I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm really bored uh, with quintessential bad guys. Uh, mm-hmm. We have them. I, we see them all the time. They, they show up on the news. They, mm-hmm. uh, they work in Congress, uh, some mm-hmm. of them. <laughs> and uh, that, I'm not interested in them as, as characters. I'm more interested in what I see in, in being the main thing about characters who are at the core of, of noir crime horror novels, mm-hmm. this is a, a, a normal individual who is very, very, very desperate. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've been blessed and lucky your entire life, I'm very happy for you, and I mean that. I'm not being sarcastic. If you have not, then probably you've contemplated, at least, even if you haven't done it, <laughs> you've mm-hmm. contemplated doing some quote-unquote bad things um, to, to climb out of a hole. And uh, I think we are blinded by our own desperation uh, Mm. many, many times in our lives. And I think when we push forward with a decision like that, there's an entire coping mechanism Mm. that uh, convinces us that, sure, it's a wrong thing, but we're doing it for all the right reasons. Mm. So it's not like I'm going to have all this guilt. It's like, yes, I recognize there will, there might be guilt, uh, but this is the thing that I need to do. And Mario spends a lot of time just mentally convincing himself that anybody who ends up on this hit list is someone who uh, deserves to die. He's someone who's uh, you know, not an asset to the world and the world is a better place if they are out of here. Um, and then, well, it doesn't quite work out the way they expected. So just doing the desperate thing doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to pull it off. Um, for some people, that's a, a lesson to be learned. And for, for some folks, it's just like, well, you should have done it earlier. Uh, and, and maybe that would have worked better for you. So, mm. yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to try to give the readers a, uh, a, a sort of 
you know, compass for their mm. morality. Um, <laughs> it's uh, I only know the the character's morality, and uh, yeah. hopefully, folks will react to that in, in different ways. Absolutely, thank you so much. Um, after the death of their daughter, Mario uh, looks to his wife and sees, quote, two small pools of emptiness where the light used to hit her pupils, uh, end quote. Can you talk about this shift in someone's physicality based on something that has transpired in their lives, especially in the eyes? Have you witnessed this in someone before in, in real life outside of the novel? I have, I have, sadly. Uh, I've been, uh, you know, walking around the house with my phone in my hand because I'm on suicide watch and I'm, I'm expecting a phone call at any minute. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we're used to seeing like, this is Robert, this is Robert on meth, this is Jenny, this mm -hmm. is Jenny on heroin. Uh, mm -hmm. The depression, anxiety, frustration, all of those mm -hmm. things are just grief, are, are huge monsters that in some cases uh, affect individuals just like heroin or, or meth. And there's, mm -hmm. there's a moment sometimes where you can see it happening from, you know, you see someone on a Saturday, you have a couple of beers, they call you on a Wednesday, let you know that they're not doing all right. And you find a different, physically, a different individual. Uh, they might look skinnier or bloated from, from not sleeping or, or puffy from crying or the light has, has gone out of their eyes. Um, and I've, I've seen it happen and, and I try to capture that. This is, this is a woman who has a, a fairly decent, fairly happy life. You know, she has a job, good husband. Um, and, and a beautiful baby daughter. And then you take the, the heart of that, that whole family unit and you get it out of there. Um, mm. And then it's kind of like losing an, an entire chunk of, of your being. Yeah, um, I too have witnessed it. And thank you so much for that answer, Gabino. Um, switching gears now, I want to ask you about a Cormac McCarthy quote. Um, I mentioned Cormac McCarthy earlier when talking about uh, comparisons I've been trying to give our booksellers for, for this novel. Um, the Cormac McCarthy quote is, you are either going to have to find some other way to live or some other place in the world to do it in, end quote. Uh, this, you do put this quote into the novel. Uh, Gabino, where is this quote from and what does it mean in the context of The Devil Takes You Home? That is from uh, Child of God, which is mm. incredibly freaking dark. Um, mm. I don't want to start arguments with anybody uh, when, when they listen mm. to this thing, but uh, I do consider some of, of Cormac McCarthy's work to be horror. It is mm -hmm. that dark. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think the, the, the road, you can call it dystopian, post-apocalyptic or, or whatever. I think it's a mm -hmm. horror novel. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. And the same goes for, for Son of God. Um, and uh, I wanted to do two things with this. First, I wanted to show that um, there is no mention of books after this little episode. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But the fact that Mario had books at home and then yeah. in his time of need, he turned to literature. And then he mm -hmm. absolutely loses that because you cross a point where the things that you love and enjoy are no longer a part of your life. Like if you're going to go kill a man, uh, you're not bringing a book along for the weight in the car. Um, and the mm -hmm. second one was there comes a point where you lose so much. Your life has shifted in, 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 a, in a completely awful sudden way and suddenly you're mm -hmm. either going to change something dramatically or you can try to keep being yourself 
get in the car and just drive till you run the hell out of gas and start somewhere else. Uh, and I thought that that quote had always stuck with me and I wanted to put it in there and sort of signify this is either a change or a different type of change. But once you go through those events, uh, nothing stays the same. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gabino. And um, yeah, I think that, you know, if we were sitting in a crowd that would have started an argument, I'm recalling back when I was in a <laughs> writing workshop as a graduate student and someone was arguing that the road was sci-fi. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, as you can imagine that it took off from there, but um, thank you. And Gabino, a relatively simple question here. Is it ever a good idea to mess with a cartel? No, no, never, <laughs> never. Just don't, not even mess. I would say don't even get involved. That would be my recommendation. Uh, yeah, I, I spent a week, uh, week and a half, uh, quote unquote, learning how to liquefy meth. And uh, um, I, was, I was thinking, well, if the whole book thing doesn't pan out. I can always, and then I realized, no, I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to do that. I'm going to let them handle that. Um, Mm -hmm. no, I'll, I'll find a, um, I don't know. I can do something else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's a whole television series about that folks. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, thank you. And listeners, um, here's a trigger warning, uh, especially for those of you with young kids and I'm going to allow you another moment, uh, to pause here if necessary. So go ahead and uh, pull your device off of the floor, wherever it is, and, and hit pause. But um, moving on, uh, Gabino, there is a very gnarly, very violent scene in this novel involving the dismemberment of a young child for um, good luck, I guess. Uh, in this case, it is the cutting off of a toe um, with some bolt cutters. Gabino, uh, what's going on here? I... Uh... When I wrote that, mm -hmm. I knew what I was trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. uh, I did not imagine for a second that that particular scene was going to take a life of its own. Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard uh, folks on Twitter call it, uh, it's the new lamp post from Hereditary, but in literary mm -hmm. form. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. I've heard it uh, called many other things. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Josh Mallerman, the, the author of Bird Box, uh, in his blurb said, you will never see bolt cutters the same way again. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I did, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it took off uh, when we tried yeah. to uh, send it out to, to filmmakers and, and, and directors and, and, and you know, Hollywood folks. Um, I think out of the first six or seven um, rejections or, or passes, I should say, uh, at least half of them included the line, too brutal. Like dude, we're not gonna we're not gonna do this thing. Um, my intent was um, it's a very fine line between me telling you what you should and should not do or mm. drink or eat or mm. me telling you how awful of a human being you are because mm. you like to sleep with men or women or how much of a monstrosity you are because you were born a man and there's only two genders and now you're transitioning and you're becoming a woman. Um, very thin line between those things and doing something else because your set of beliefs tells you that something else is magical or protection or gives you the advantage in, in the situation. Um, in this case, the child, uh, El Milagrito, uh, his, uh, his, in bed and uh 
they think is a miracle. He's a child touched by God. And if I can take mm-hmm. a piece of that, uh, it's sort of the extreme view of if I can touch you, if I can have mm-hmm. like some of your tears or a chunk of your hair or, you know, mm-hmm. a, a piece of your tunic, it's, it's going to be, it's going to work miracles for me. Um, and uh, because I always love exploring religion in, in my work, um, I thought it was going to be really interesting to see how people reacted to this is done with love and with care. And the woman mm. is the woman who performs the uh, uh, bolt cutter scene. <laughs> she is praying. Yeah. She loves the child. Um, mm. In fact, she does this in order to raise money to um, offer the kid who's you know in a bed forever and ever uh, the best mm. life that she can, while also helping people who really believe he's been this is a child touched by God. Um, and then he took a life on its own. And uh, mm-hmm. and uh, now I find myself signing galleys and being like, I apologize for the child <laughs> mutilation. I hope you enjoy. Um, so it's fun. Yeah, yeah. Hard to protect a child's uh, best interests when you cut out um, his teeth and, and yeah. tongue and everything. <laughs> um, that was the gnarliest part of that scene to me was not the bolt cutter part, but the part where he's like making this guttural like mm, sound and like he opens his mouth and has nothing in there. Um We'll continue to talk about this, but finally, um, and listeners, as is so often the case, there is so much more to talk about here, but I'm going to leave the bulk of this novel, uh, which will undoubtedly be one of the best of the year, unspoiled. But Gabino, you know, the scene that we were just talking about that was so gnarly, so violent, uh, so sensationalistic, um, it is all of these things, and yet it serves the story perfectly nothing about this scene is out of place nothing about this scene seems like it's in there just for the shock value of it uh can you talk about the challenges of writing such a violent sensational scene while making it serve the story so well and avoiding the temptation uh, to take it overboard uh the the temptation to take things overboard is always there because mm-hmm. uh, a horror gore pulp uh, uh, campy stuff. It's a lot of fun. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, um, I have a very long standing, very profound, uh, very deep uh, relationship with uh, violence. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are ways of using violence in, in, in horror and, and thrillers and, and crime fiction and noir uh, that serve the story. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. think any story uh, that's really dark and horrible works if uh, there's no empathy. So mm-hmm. you have to build that empathy first. If not, then it's just, uh, it's gore. It's like a million other movies. You know, you, you might as well put a guy running around with a, with a chainsaw and uh, have fun with it. Um, mm-hmm. But I always like to think, all right, so we understand violence. We, we know the formula of violence. We know there's an attacker and we know there's each, the attacker perpetrates an act of violence upon a victim. How do we play with that formula? What, what do we build around it? Uh, how do we give it uh, a significance to, to put the emphasis on stuff that's not the violence itself? How, we, how do we make this about the characters and not the bolt cutters? <laughs> um, and uh, I, I think I've, I've done it uh, in the last three books where it's, if I'm going to decapitate someone like I did in, in, in Zero Saints, um, mm-hmm. I want it to be someone who sent a message, someone who stuck with you, someone whose ghost would sort of impact the rest of the story in one way or another. And with this one, it was like, all right, 
I have to open up a gate um, where I say, be 100% sure that there's some slightly supernatural stuff going on in here. So while this thing is happening at the end of that scene, something else happens with the crosses that are all over the bedroom because this is a very uh, religious woman. Um, so I, yes, I wanted to have fun with it. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted it to be an important scene. I wanted it to be uh, that point where in a way you, you know that if you get past that, you're in for the rest of the book. Uh, but mm. I'm, uh, you know, I'm sad to say I'm fully aware that some folks will stop reading at that point in time. Uh, and I don't blame them. That it's, it's uh, not every book is for every reader. Um, but for me, it was more about the, what, what are we gonna say? How are we going to introduce uh, uh, the extreme violence that goes hand in hand with the supernatural uh, without turning it into a gore fest? Going with a toe was was part of that. It's a tiny mm -hmm. toe. It's like a jelly bean. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. not that big of a of a situation. Um, I mean, I don't want to have one of my toes chopped off by a, a yeah. um, <laughs> ball cutters, <laughs> but it could have been worse. I could have gone, you know, a bigger, uh, and I mm -hmm. didn't just to let it be more of an introduction than a, a gore fest. Absolutely, and uh, listeners, don't stop reading there push through Please. it's well worth it um thank you gabino and thank you for writing this wonderful book and uh, i do want to shout out um Quelridge books employee john carroll thomas here who sent me an email when he saw that we were scheduled to do this interview um he runs our horror book club quails from the crypt um where he um said gabino iglesias i see you're interviewing him i'm psyched that is all. Uh, and then he went and um, ordered up all of your uh, back catalog for our story here. So oh, thank um, you, John. Yeah, he's very excited. And hopefully he'll read your book for his uh, book club. Well, um, listeners, I've been speaking with Gabino Iglesias, author of The Devil Takes You Home, which is published by our friends at Mall Holland Books. Gabino, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Once again, I would like to thank Gabino Iglesias for joining me. Copies of The Devil Takes You Home can be ordered at www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries and this has been Bookin'.